Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. We just had the most fun conversation with a woman who has written the book that will make your October, if you're anything like me as a reader. It's pretty. It's scary. It's sexy. It's fun. We had Lana Harper with Paybacks, which, friends, what did you think of her? I think she's the best. She was so sweet and so nice and just so very open uh, about her practice as a practice in Wiccan and about how she actually crafts. And of course, Julie had to pull some real good information out of her. Right, we pulled out some magic. So guys, when you learn about Lana, you're gonna learn about the rise of popularity of witches and pop culture and the shift in perception from scary, lonely, or outcast to powerful women. And you're going to learn that Julie could tell from the writing who she interacts with, because apparently writing a book when you are magical makes magical things happen. Yes, because apparently Julie does more than just palm reading. Apparently she can read a book and tell everything that's going on behind the scenes. <laughs> this did not come up in the conversation, but my ancestors were on trial for witchcraft, so maybe I felt the magic. Oh my goodness. Everyone who is now generously getting feedback from Julie, just so you know, she's reading all of you and getting your book into shape. Just kidding. She's not. She's just basically magical in terms of making your book better. But we can't wait. We love this interview. Go get the book, Paybacks a Witch, and thank us after. Friends, we are so happy to welcome a very special guest who has exactly the book you need for your October. Mm -hmm. Lana Harper has written a beautiful story that is everything you would want for this month. Lana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. I'm so happy to be here and talk about Payback. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like I love this book so much. In October, I just start feeling like I need a little magic. I start needing a little romance. I just want to live in the woods. And you gave us all of that. So thank you. I can't wait to dive in. I'm so glad. It's just like that smell to the air. Everything shifts. You have that witchy wind happening. And oh my I, gosh. for me, it's, it's all of October feels like that. It's like the cusp of Halloween. So yeah, I'm excited. Yay. Can you tell us a little about how you got started? Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? And how did you find your agent and your editor? Sure. So I had a like a little bit of a wayward journey, which is that I thought I was going to be a lawyer. So I studied psychology and literature in undergrad. I was a first generation immigrant. So I was like, I'm going to come here and I'm going to become a lawyer. It's all going to be very straightforward. And then I got into law school and I hated it so much, like so terrible. I was constantly brainstorming and fantasizing ways to drop out. And my parents were like, you're ridiculous. You can't do that. You have to have some kind of other plan in place. And so I ended up getting a master's in publishing and writing from Emerson after law school. And then I segued to being a literary agent almost immediately thereafter, because I was like, oh, that'll be like an easy leveraging of that law degree. But while I was- <laughs> Sorry, yeah. as an agent, I have to laugh. Sorry. Exactly. I was like, it's going to be fine. And to be fair, like compared to the sort of stultifying things that you have to do as a lawyer, agenting is wonderful. It's like delightful and so much more, I think, gratifying than a lot of legal jobs. So I was doing that for, I think, almost seven years, six to seven years, but I was writing in the meantime as well. So I was writing my young adult. 
And then I got my agent because she and I went to Emerson together and she started agenting at the same time as me. So when I started thinking about going out on my own as a writer, she had first dibs (laughs) on my work. So I was spared the query trenches and I never had to do that. And it was wonderful because it's so hard as a writer to be querying agents. It's incredibly challenging and can be so dispiriting. So we submitted my first book, which was a sapphic vampire romance, actually. And that one did not sell. And then a year after that, we went on sub with Wicked Like a Wildfire, the first contemporary fantasy in the Hibiscus Daughter duology, and that sold. So that just kicked things off. I am from New England, so of course I know Emerson is such a great place for the artistically minded. And I'm not surprised at all being that close to Salem and the ideas around witches and everything else that you came up with this book. With that being said, I thoroughly enjoyed your setting, Thistle Grove. Can you tell us your inspiration behind this amazingly real feeling place? It was, in fact, Salem. So you, (laughs) I I lived in Marblehead for two years. Oh, perfect. I was just like popping in and out of Salem. And my best friend lived in Salem that entire time. And while I was doing that, I was at the time a member of an active coven. So I was doing all kinds of, yeah, the most fun. It was wonderful. And then eventually they were lovely, but I just didn't have enough time. It's like a serious time commitment Mm. to do that. And I was not in a space where I could do it, but I spent a lot of time in Salem and Salem has this smell because when you walk down the, the kind of tourist drag, all of the stores that sell tourist trap stuff have different incense burning And you can smell all of it mingling and it's magical. And there's constantly sort of vendors and stuff happening on the main streets. There's haunted tours. There's these gorgeous colonials and Cape Cods and Gothic architecture too. So it's just an incredibly cool place. So I was thinking, how could I elevate this? I want that feeling, but in a place that's even more beautiful and even more ethereal that feels like genuine magic. Mm -hmm. Because of course, like Thistle Grove has Hallows Hill the little mountain and it has Ladies Lake on top of it. That's the magical fuel for the town. So I wanted it to not be Salem, not like a carbon copy. I wanted it to be its own thing, but to evoke that atmosphere that I used to get every Halloween when I went there that was so tingly, but so cozy, spooky at the same time, like not frightening, but genuinely welcoming in that way. That was actually our next question. How did you draw the line between spooky and aesthetically pleasing Halloween of your nostalgia? So I, in my past writing, have always been drawn towards very dark magic. And this was the first time where I was like, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're just going to make a happy space. This is going to be a rom-com. I want the relationship, the bisexual romance at the center to be really happy and not fraught and not angsty. So like whatever problems they have, I want them to be situational problems and personal problems and not have to derive from their identity. And I felt the same thing for magic. So I wanted it to be happy. Even the Avramovs who do divination and necromancy, arguably like pretty dark stuff. It's still the lighter fare compared to what I typically write, just because I didn't want it to be weighed down by overly spooky elements or like blood or just like stuff that was going to make people maybe get icked out or alienated in a way that I didn't want happening. So I wanted it to be more accessible than the darker. And I love like, a lot of my earlier books, I'm like, oh, welcome to my TED talk on this magical system. I can explain exactly how this spell works. And I didn't want that level of overcomplexity happening here. I just wanted it to be fun for people to read. Can you tell us about how you learned to do description so well? I would recommend that you over describe everything 
to like ad nauseum until everyone is so sick of your descriptions and then eventually you're like so sad by all the Goodreads reviews that tell you to stop doing so much describing (laughs) and then you forcibly pull it back. I just describe everything. I feel that I'm a very sensory writer. To me, all the senses are important. Smell, feel, sight audio, everything is important. So sometimes I have been known to go overboard. And I think for me, it's been a lesson in how much is enough? Like how much does it take to get someone really immersed and how do you weave it with a narrative voice? So you don't have a weird discord between the poetic descriptions of things and a person's just natural kind of speaking voice because you're in their mind and you don't want to feel like there's a strange dissonance there. So I think for me, it was just practice. I spent five books before payback figuring out how to strike that balance. And I'm glad that people seem to be happy with this one because, yeah, I used to get so dragged. <laughs> oh, no. Having, like, yeah, having all the descriptions get in the way of the plot. They were like, oh, my God, I don't care about how things smell or taste. You've been talking about this too much. I just want things to happen. So now I try to temper it. But I like I it like- so much. Yeah, you did it perfectly right. in this book. Just enough everywhere. That's wonderful. I didn't pull back too much, but I certainly was like, okay, maybe you don't need three pages. Like maybe you could do with half a page (laughs) in this instance. That's true. Every reader is different. But so some people like having all of that description because they enjoy that. That's how they get grounded in their settings and in the characters and how everybody's feeling. But other people are more like, oh, just tell me what happens next. (laughs) I just want the plot. I'm just here for the action. And people have very visceral reactions. Do you be like really surprised? Some people hate being told what other people smell like. Like they huh. find it like like personally off-putting. It's really interesting to me because I'm like, don't you have to smell people in your daily life? Like <laughs> we don't always have to like smells, but we're all exposed to them all the time. But there are definitely people who take a lot of issue to being forced to smell characters <laughs> through the descriptions. And the only thing I can do is convey it as best I can and then like hope people will take what's valuable for them and then not be offended by the rest of it at least. Well, even your characters, like I think Emmy would enjoy the description and Gareth would be like, get to the point. <laughs> exactly. Totally. He would be. He'd be like, I don't care about any of this, whatever. Can you talk about building romantic tension? Like I personally loved the makeout scene in the Enchanted Forest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad that one was a total ad lib. I wasn't planning on it. And then once I realized there was going to be a haunted forest, I was like, oh yeah, they definitely have to get busy there. It's just going to have to happen. So it was just a very slow ratcheting of tension because I wanted it to feel like a drawn out process between the two of them that took a while to build up. I had never really done it that way before. So it was a learning experience and I was hoping that I was doling it out not too slowly and that it wasn't too frustrating to make people wait for what was going to come to pass between them. But I would say it came about more organically than any of the other elements. I really had to feel my way into it because I'd never written such a romance heavy story before. So I'm glad that it worked. It was pretty too. I like how you made it so that it was not just standard on our planet romance magic, but enchanted in a way too. And all the magical consequences after I thought were really interesting too. Who doesn't want to, after a pandemic, go into an enchanted forest? <laughs> with, yes, we've all been in our houses. We're just like, go into the forest, see what happens. <laughs> so amazing. So in the start of your project, your main character, Emmy Harlow, couldn't feel the magic But it soon came back when she came back to the town. How did you go about the construction of building magic within characters? Something I haven't really thought much about. 
So specifically, Emmy's magic, it's yes. kind of like a metaphor almost for her coming to terms with what this town means to her and her identity. And so it felt very easy to give her this gradual reacclimation to this magic that she'd left behind, especially because on the one hand, her native magic is not very strong. The magic she was born with as a Harlow, as far as we know, is the weakest of the four families. But then she also gets this crash course because she's the arbiter. And so she gets the arbiter's mantle, which is incredibly powerful. And so that was an easy way to force her to encounter this like delightful magical temptation that this town means. So it gave me Uh, a spectrum to play with because on the one hand she's delighted by even the smallest development of her magic on the other hand she's being faced with this incredibly intoxicating moment of being a powerful witch for the first time in her life and coming to terms with what that means and what this town could mean for her so on the one hand it was just like a fun thing for me to do and on the other hand it was a very easy and natural plot device for her reorienting herself to this little grove and maybe reconsidering the possibility of a life there. I loved when the grandmother said that she still remembered how it felt to have that powerful magic and she missed it. Like all those years later, I thought that was such a cool way to describe how great it felt. And Anna Caro in her like exceedingly crude language, yes, <laughs> she definitely loved it so much and was like, you're going to have the best time. I still think about it all these years after because it's just one of those experiences and it's so nostalgic, right? Like you're never going to have it again. And in some ways, we all have those experiences, whether it's college or some other formative moment. So for Emmy, this is one of those moments. Can you talk about the tournament, the town's history and how you decided to add this thread? When I was initially planning the idea, it was uh, back and forth with my agent and what I was going to do next. And so she was thinking, okay, John Tucker must die, but there's witches. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that's amazing. That's perfect. That's exactly what I want to be writing. Because we had been going back and forth on rom-com witchy ideas for a while. So once I knew that was the central kernel, I knew I had to build it out from there. And the first thing that I knew needed to exist was the witchy town. And then I knew I had to have some high stakes And the spellcasting tournament was the stakes. That's where they were going to be sabotaging the bastard warlock. So then once I started thinking there was going to be a tournament, it really helped me develop the four families. What are their strengths? Why do they even compete? What's the history of the town? So it was a really interesting kind of entry point into building out all the rest of the town's history. And it sounds very cheesy to say this. I have never had this experience before, but writing about it felt very much like excavating something that was already Mm -hmm. there. Maybe because the process, like the free association that happens felt so easy and effortless compared to how writing normally feels. So it was just like a wonderful organic moment for me. So one thing that happened when we were writing the questions for this, we were in the Google Doc together and- (laughs) Julie started describing it's such a funny thing. Gareth Blackmore and she's Gareth Blackmore is a villain and I deleted that and wrote douchebag. <laughs> so I, wait, I was like, why am I not being able to type this? I was trying to write villain and she's like <laughs> <laughs> I mean to me he's like a guy named Chad who smashes beer cans on his head, but he's like worse because he's manipulative. And how did you go about writing this character that I think probably will make most of your female readers just hate him? That was the purpose. We needed a Chad, but we also needed a charming Chad because it was like, how do you bamboozle all these smart women into falling for him? I've bamboozled by Chads before. 
And I would love to drive them into the ground one way or another, but I haven't been able to so far. So I think what I wanted to convey was like, we all know this guy, like he's this white cishet guy and he's a douche and he has all the advantages and he's just walking around making a mess. But I had to have him be just charming enough, or at least that we can understand what the appeal might be so that we can see where did these relationships come from, but also not want to redeem him. I had no interest in creating like a redemption arc for him, which is not to say that he won't be a character in future books, but in this book, there was no place for any kind of emotional arc for him. I just wanted him to get his just desserts. Uh, and I wanted it to be a familiar character because I really feel like it's like turn on Fox News or even just go to a college campus. Like you're going to see this guy. And it's so instantly recognizable. And sometimes they're very attractive and it makes it complicated. And then you like make a mistake with him and then you're mad at yourself forever. So here's a chance to turn the tables. So I'm so interested in essence and books. I'm just like fascinated by how a person's comprehension can pull something out of a book. And this is the weirdest thing. You're going to be like, what are you even talking about? The entire time I was reading your project, I kept thinking of a woman I know named Julie Gagnon. And I know she was your writing partner. <laughs> she is. Yes. I love Julie. She's actually my best friend. Oh my gosh. That is so funny because I was like, I feel like this is like Jilly. This person has a Jilly vibe to her. And the entire time I was thinking of Jilly and I know her from a CBWI, I found it um, Squam, like writing retreat. And she took it over from me. And I was like, this is so weird how I could feel the essence of her in this book. Wow. I can't say it's not modeled after Jilly. I'm going to go visit her in two weeks in Salem. And it was her haircut and it was her vibe. I love Julie. I never thought of Emmy as Julie, but that's incredibly funny. And I'll have to tell her that you said that. Well, tell her I said, hi. So did your critique group help in this project? How do you find your writing people? And how do you know they're your writing people? I do have a critique group and it's three people. It's Julie. And then it's also my friend, Chelsea Sadati, who is a young adult writer who's been writing with source books. And then it's Adriana Mather, who has How to Hang a Witch, Kelly November, and a bunch of other young adult witchy thrillers. She also lives near Salem. I initially met Julie through uh, Catherine Teagan books because we were debuting the same year. And so we were thrown together. We met in Boston. We were like, okay, we're in love now. We're just best friends forever. This is a natural fit. And then she invited me to join her writing group. I met Adriana, I think, just because she happened to be living close to me. And so some of it is just proximity. And then some of it is just like the threads getting pulled. So like you have a writing friend and then you meet someone through them who's an even better fit in the literary world. So I've been to Squam actually, and I loved it. I was at Squam two years ago, I think, but I was pregnant. I couldn't do like any of the fun wine. I know it's so amazing. I had to pass it off after we started the Manuscript Academy. And I just, I love it there so much. It's, it's fascinating. And I do feel like there's energy, like books have energy and the people around you and how they think about books affect your project and how, when you get in that critique group that where things really work, like it almost is like the energy of all of the people. So I feel like that's like a coven. And that's what I was going to say to you. It's like, it's a group of people that are creating things out of nothing, whether it's 
magic, whether it's spells, it's a super interesting thing. And people say, well, how do you know when you found the right one? And you just know. You just feel it. You just you feel just, it. Yeah. It's just a lot of, to do with, with magic and people who are practicing Wiccans or witches. You, you just feel it. It really mm-hmm. is. It's like a, what they call a liminal experience. You just know it when you feel it. And there's no real doubt or confusion about it. And I think that's the same thing when you find your people or your mm-hmm. book. Like some books Mm. just resonate that same exact way. One of the things that you were saying a moment ago was so interesting. I heard recently that your diet isn't just what you eat. It's the media (laughs) you absorb. It's the energy around you. It's the books you read. It's the TV you watch. It's the conversations you have. And I think it's a really nice thing to think about here. What energy are you as a writer absorbing? Because it comes through so clearly on the page that Julie can tell who your writing partner is. I think that's a really nice thing to think about. It's an incredibly cool thing to think about. I've never had someone pinpoint a friend of mine from books before. The only time I hear that is usually from people who were friends and who read my books and they're like, oh, reading this is like hanging out with you. It's like talking to you. But I don't think I've had anyone divine a friend of mine from writing. So that's like an extra level of awesome. But I think generally what you read and what you ingest definitely gets reflected and repurposed in your work. So I read a lot of rom-coms, but I also read a lot of genre fiction. So I feel like Payback is definitely a child of the type of books that I like to read. And I'm a big Jacqueline Carey fan. So I love the Cushiel series, but I also love the more genre offerings like the Jim Butcher Dresden Files. I really love the harder boiled stuff. So I was thinking of like that kind of sweet spot because I feel like all the movies, all the books, all the shows that you watch and apparently all the friends that you have definitely make it onto the page. Could you very quickly tell us a story of something magical happening? Something magical happening. Oh, I have a lot of these, but one really cool one recently. It was actually a little bit scary and I didn't react as I should have. And I'm sorry now because I feel like I could have gone to Narnia or something would have happened. I was on vacation with my parents and my son. And we were at this California resort where there was a ton of ravens. And I love ravens, corvids in general. I love the goddess Lilith. So I was like, this is so cool. Amazing. I just love seeing them around. And then our last night at like around three in the morning, one of them landed on my balcony and started shrieking. And I had never heard one yell like that. And I didn't even know what it was. It woke me up out of sleep. And so I just kept hearing these like, screams and I was like there's a serial killer outside my window this is terrifying and so I just laid there for 15 minutes being like should I call the police I don't know what's going on and at some point I got up and went over and there was just a raven sitting on my balcony and then it could see me eventually and it just kept doing that for a full hour it just cawed directly at me and I was like do you want me to come outside I don't know. I'm very nervous. I feel like something will happen if I come outside and I ended up not doing that. So I really think I missed my doorway or whatever was supposed to happen. And I'm like never going to forgive myself, but it, it made, to be fair, a very scary sound. I didn't know what was going to happen if I went out there. Oh my gosh. Maybe it was like a mating call. <laughs> Could be my wife. I don't know what it wanted, but it was really shrill and incredibly loud. And it went on for such a long time. I had been there for quite a while already and nothing like that had mm. happened. So it just felt very personal. I love oh. that. That is amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh my gosh. So as a practicing Wiccan, how do you think the rise in popularity in witchcraft in general has changed the way the world views your practice? I think it's become so much more mainstream now. I think witches are accepted 
and even glamorized, I would say, especially on social media, you see a lot of hashtag glam, witch, like witch influencers. And some of it, I do a little tongue in cheek, making fun of them in the book, but I don't really mean it because I think that they provide a valuable service. Yes, they're making money off of it, but they're also creating a narrative that is so much more palatable and creates this accessibility into that lifestyle for people who might not otherwise have it. And I think part of it is linked to a lot of things like the evolution of just generally women stepping into positions of strength or allowing themselves to want that. And there's a certain allure to a life where you're like manifesting your destiny. You're powerful. You have these maybe powers that other people don't have. And then you have a sisterhood, you have a community. And it's also, if you want it to be sexy and beautiful. So it's just a complete reversal of this like punitive view, this very patriarchal punishing view of witches as wayward women who are misbehaving and who we should get rid of because like now that can't happen anymore functionally, hopefully. So I find it a powerful moment. I think it's a very, hopefully a very feminist and positive movement for women to identify as witches if they feel that calling. It doesn't have to be religious either. That's the thing. I think people conflate Wicca, Wiccans and witchcraft can just be a tool. So you can absolutely enjoy tarot and be Jewish or a Buddhist or even an observant Christian. It's just something that you can use to elevate your life or even as a form of self-care. I think it's a way to give yourself space and grace and just like the ability to have a magical moment that's like yours and completely constructed by you. That's terrific. I hope that makes sense. It totally does. What is your number one tip for writers? I think any kind of routine is so helpful. So if you can just make yourself, it doesn't even have to be a long writing period every day. But if you're going to become a professional writer of any kind, that sort of perseverance, you have to do it. Even if it comes at a cost, maybe you're sacrificing a hobby or a moment with your significant other or child. And it's painful because you shouldn't have to give other stuff up to be able to actualize as a writer. But I think functionally, that's what happens. So I think the willingness to create space to do it is really important and to hold that space and to not let other people tell you that you're being silly. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Where can we find you online? I'm sure we're going to have people wanting to follow you. I'm on Instagram mainly, and I'm at Lana Light, L-A-N-A-L-Y-T-E. I'm also on Twitter, though not quite as much. There I'm at Lana Popovic Lit, and I have a website at lanapopovicbooks.com. So any of those places, please reach out. I love talking to readers. I respond to everything. (laughs) So I'm very happy to chat. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. We loved it. It's such a great book. Made my October. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so happy to hear that. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.